All right. Well, perhaps he missed the English part of this. Well, I guess let's get started. Sorry for the delays. Um, it's uh, Steph, and we are um, uh, having a, a little round table about the entrepreneurial life or entrepreneurial questions. There are uh, people who are, uh, listen to Freedom Made Radio are obviously a pretty independent bunch. And uh, a lot of them have uh, uh, either yearnings towards the entrepreneurial life or they are already firmly ensconced in the flaming hyper-trajectory roller coaster of an entrepreneurial life. Uh, and just remember, if you could, if you're not talking at the moment, if you could mute, uh, I would really appreciate that, uh, just so we don't get background noises all the time. And uh, so there was a call, I think, on the last Sunday show. And sorry, by the way, I forgot to tag it correctly. So you might need to. Uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, I think the album is the, the title or something. So you might need to check if you can't find it. But uh, someone called in with an entrepreneurial question. And, and since there are so many people who are interested in the entrepreneurial life, and there's such a great number of resources available, and being an entrepreneur is a lot about, about just using resources uh, that are available to you, uh, and particularly networking and conversations. You can solve a lot of problems quite easily uh, by just getting the information ahead of time rather than just having to, uh, you know, sort of make it up uh, as you go. I mean, go, go, uh, make it up as you go along, which is a pretty brutal way to, uh, uh, to learn anything. So, uh, so I thought it would be interesting. We can sort of see if, if we like it. Uh, and uh, we can uh, see if it's useful to people. Uh, I have a, just a very two-second two bit on my entrepreneurial history. Um, I've worked for big companies like um, Unisys and, uh, and IBM and, uh, and other companies that are very large uh, in pretty junior positions, of course. And uh, uh, I also worked for a, um, a bank, uh, well, a trading company, which was part of a bank, a trading floor, as a programmer. And from there, I went into uh, business um, as a sort of co-founder of a software company, which I worked at for seven years as the chief technical officer, uh, I was um, uh, the the architect of the technical environment that the system was developed in, and developed so I developed the architecture for the Windows and the web versions and the content. And uh, I would uh, I traveled around a lot in the states and in uh, a little bit in Europe and in China to to sort of sell the software. We grew to about 40 people and we sold the company. Uh, and uh, I did that for about seven, I think seven years or eight years or something like that. And uh, it was a great deal of fun, a great deal of excitement, a, a great deal of challenge. Uh, and uh, a really, I mean, wouldn't wouldn't trade the experience for the world. It was really wonderful. And it gave me a lot of, I think, help of preparation for uh, Freedom Made Radio. Um, and then I, I took some time off and, and wrote uh, some, some books, and then I got back into the IT fields and worked for small companies, uh, two more small companies, and uh, as one as a director of technology, which was like chief technical officer. They, just, they didn't have that title. This is what they used. And the other was director of marketing. And so I have some uh, knowledge and some experience. I certainly would not say that I am you know, a really experienced entrepreneur, uh, but I have, uh, I think, some good, uh, good experience and good tips. And... Uh, given that we're all about the freedom here, right? Given that we're all about uh, freedom uh, and choice and possibility, I think it's a good idea to at least examine or look into the, uh, the entrepreneurial life uh, because it does give you a lot of autonomy and uh, a lot of freedom. And uh, I mean, <laughs> with, with great freedom comes great fear and <laughs> great responsibility, so to speak. But uh, it's, it's better, I think, to be as much in charge of your own destiny as possible. 
So uh, I hope that uh, makes some kind of sense. Um, and uh, I'm certainly happy to hear other people's uh, thoughts or questions or comments about uh, entrepreneurial stuff. And I thought since we don't really want to sort of pull teeth out of people who may or may not be willing to speak, um, for, the, for the people who are considering it, um, to, to toss out questions about the entrepreneurial life to people who've had some experience in it. Uh, and perhaps we could provide some uh, useful ways to look at whether it is something for you. It's certainly not for everyone. Uh, and I would certainly not recommend that you do the entrepreneurial life at the same time as you're doing, you know, <laughs> something else big in the world, you know, like, uh, you know, having a kid or, or, I don't know, going to university or something. Uh, I would say um, it's probably not a very good idea uh, to do that. Um, but... Um, people have done it, and people have done it well, but uh, it certainly wouldn't be my choice. Uh, I'm very glad that I uh, finished at least the more travel-intensive part of the entrepreneurial life, or my entrepreneurial life, before, uh, I, had, uh, uh, before I had a baby, uh, and even before I was married. I didn't travel too, too much. I mean, I used to spend a week or two a month on the road um, selling and, and uh, starting up. We started up offices in... Uh, Vancouver and in California, San Francisco, and so on. And uh, I did a lot of traveling for that kind of stuff and uh, a lot of traveling for sales. I had like three cities in three days kind of thing. And uh, so I'm glad that I don't have to do that amount of travel. It definitely is a part of the entrepreneurial life uh, if you're, you know, sort of client facing or potential client facing. So, um, so I, you know, my sort of thing is, and we've, we've talked about this once before on this, sh on this show. It's just not a great idea, I think. Like if you say, well, I want to settle down and you know, get married and have kids in the next couple of years, um, starting a business um, may, not be, may not be the right thing to do. I mean, it's better than, than a lot of other options, but to me, it wouldn't be the ideal thing to do. So, so I thought we'd just sort of toss it out to, um, uh, to anybody who had questions about um, the entrepreneurial life for those who've had some experience, and we can see if we can... Uh, um, uh, toss uh, toss back some some words of wisdom that might help save some time and energy and all that kind of stuff. Uh, someone has asked, would anyone consider using NLP to further their entrepreneurial venture? And I'm not sure what that means. What is the NLP? Neurolinguistic programming. Oh, I don't know. Sorry. I don't know what that is really. Yeah, so there are actually... Sorry about that. I'll, uh, I posted a link in the chat. And there's actually, these people are sort of tangentially in, in my network um, who runs that website um, actually does do like courses and stuff like that on um, neurolinguistic programming as, for, as regards selling. Um, I've looked into it. Personally, I, I think it's a little bit skeevy, but I don't know, your mileage may vary. Well, I will say. You explain what it is. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Could you explain what it is for um, those of you, those of us who don't know what it is at all? Sure. Um, so basically, it's it's setting up sort of um, patterns, or it's exploiting patterns that are in in people's minds through the sort of words that you use. Um, it's a field of applied psychology basically it's it's a little bit hard to explain 
if you've ever heard of uh, Darren Brown, um, that's a good example. Would it be fair to say that it's uh, uh, learning about and exploiting the power of suggestion? It doesn't work on everybody, but it works on a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, that's that's pretty much what it is. Yeah, I think that's that's terrible to do as an entrepreneur. I think that's that's a bad thing to do as an entrepreneur. And it's not just bad, like, to me, it's sort of insecure. Like, let me sort of give you, you know, I mean, this is, I'm sure, common knowledge to most people. But for those who have this question, uh, sales are not achieved uh, in, in a honorable sales are not achieved by tricking people with, you know, with, with language, you know, that's like saying, well, I'm going to splash pheromones on me to get a date. You know, <laughs> to me, that's just kind of sad. And it's saying, well, I'm not attractive, so I need pheromones. And if you're thinking about using linguistic tricks to attempt to get people to buy stuff from you, what you're saying is you don't believe that it's, it's valuable to them in its, in its natural state. Um, because if, you know, it's to take a silly example, if you're going to offer a Lamborghini for $5, uh, everybody will buy it because you know even if they don't want it they can sell it for more than that um, uh, right away so clearly a Lamborghini for five dollars is going to be bought by everyone except perhaps Ed Begley Jr. who would rather have a bike but um, uh, th that that would have value and so you you wouldn't need linguistic tricks and and uh, all this sort of nonsense to to sell a Lamborghini for five dollars because it would just have so much innate value that people would want it um, and so if you are involved in a business or considering a business where you cannot genuinely understand the value proposition or the value proposition just doesn't make any real sense to you, then that's not a good business to be in, right? It's really not a good business to be in. You have to, have to, have to understand what the value proposition is of either what you're joining in a business to sell or what you yourself are going to create and sell. And if you want to rely on other kinds of tricks, uh, and, and this is not just about NLP, this is about, you know, well, we'll just market the hell out of it, <laughs> you know, or something like that, then what you're basically saying is, I don't know why anyone would buy this, so I need marketing or NLP or, you know, really charismatic salespeople or whatever, but, uh, you know, the fundamental thing about being an entrepreneur, and I'm not saying this is, this was not obvious to me at the beginning, particularly because I was a tech head, but the fundamental thing about being an entrepreneur is, or in business, I would say in any significant way, is w what am I selling, right? You, you're selling back time or you're selling back money. That, that's what you're selling. You're selling, you're not selling a good, right? You're selling time and you're sending, uh, you're selling money back to people, right? So uh, to take a, an example, um, I'm digging way back so these numbers may not be entirely accurate, but when I first uh, put together a software package. Uh, it was to help people to um, uh, enter information uh, digitally on site when they would go and do particular kinds of environmental surveys. And it, it, it took the price of the survey from uh, $2,500 uh, down to uh, $1,500, right? So it was uh, that amount of money was saved, plus uh, it was already electronic uh, and therefore could be presented. So you, you would give the program and the data to the client, right, if they wanted it so that they would have all of their stuff. They could do searches and summaries and all that kind of stuff. And then at some point it started sort of spewing out word processing reports, which were easier for people to file. And so not only did the price go down, but I think the quality of what was being provided went up. And so what were we selling? 
well, we were selling um, time and money back to the clients, right? So they would pay us X amount of dollars for the software package. And then in perpetuity, they would be able to reduce the um, uh, the price of their surveys from $2,500 to $1,500. And they would be able to provide a better uh, reports, more consistent reports and better reports to um, to their clients. So so we would say, because, you know, whenever you buy and sell a piece of land in um, in Ontario, particularly if you're a business, you have to have uh, an ESA, an environmental site assessment done, uh, you know, to make sure you don't sell a piece of land. And then, you know, five years from now, you find out that there used to be a battery plant there 50 years ago. And the whole thing is riddled with, you know, horrible stuff and you're going to have to pay millions of dollars to clean it. So you have an, a site assessment done. And so, we you know, we'd go and we'd say, so, you know, we'd say to these companies, you got these site assessments done and you got this big box of printed reports, which do you no good, right? They're there in case you ever need a lawyer, but they don't do you any good. You can't manage, you know, a big pile of, of paper reports, whereas if you get it in a database, uh, it can be managed, it can be searched, it can be summarized and, and so on. And we began to sort of integrate it into Outlook for action lists and tasks and so on. And so, you know, the price went down and the value of the information came up so they didn't just get shipped all these boxes of paper. So we were selling back time and money, both now and in the future, and that's why people would give us money for the software, right? Because you have to be giving back more than you're getting, in a way, at least from the client's perspective. So, uh, you know, when, when you are offering a clear value proposition, you know, pay X amount of dollars for the software, and you can save $1,000 on every assessment that you do uh, and get much better um, data out of it, u- usable data rather than just printed reports, then the, the, I don't need, you know, we don't need linguistic tricks. We don't need a really sharp suit. We don't need a fast patter. We don't need a parrot and a peg leg. And, you know, we don't need gimmicks because it's simply a mathematical model. And that is the challenge, right? The real challenge at the beginning of your entrepreneurial life is, you know, to have the idea that that is going to be productive, to develop the, the solution or the tool that is going to be productive. and And then you have to just, give a lot of stuff away and that doesn't mean you don't eat but it's really cheap relative to what is uh, is going on i mean the first software package that i sold was five thousand dollars <laughs> it sounds like a lot but uh, uh it really wasn't and then i guess one of the later ones was was eight hundred thousand dollars all told or something like that nine hundred thousand with with all the customization so at the very beginning you have to give a lot of stuff away you have to work really really cheap because otherwise nobody's going to hire you. Like if you charge the same price as IBM, people would just go to IBM, right? So so you, you have to work really cheap. And the reason that you do that, the reason you give away the farm, is so that you can put together the business case, right? And this is something that uh, um, I had challenges at other points in my career trying to get people to understand, right? I mean, you need to go in and you need to track the success of what it is that you've you've done. So we had to go and verify that we were saving you know, $1,000 in audit, and we had to really work hard to to do the before and the after and see how the workflow had changed and see how many hours were, were uh, taken down and to see uh, whether the customers who got the database version were happier with the database version than a box of printed reports. And so it's really around, when you start out, you have an idea and you, you take it for a run. And of course, a lot of ideas don't work out for whatever reason. You have an idea and you take it for a run. And the very beginning of the entrepreneurial gig is to try to validate the business case. Now, if you can't validate the business case, 
then I think it's not a good business to be in. I think it's actually kind of dishonorable because if you can't validate your business case, then you, you don't actually have a value that you know about that you're selling. You're selling a story, right? And, and that may not be the end of the world, but I think it's really important to still keep going back to try and validate your business case so that you can say with certainty, you give me X, I will give you 2X. You give me Y, I will give you 3Y. And uh, to continue to work on that, and that's something that in the sort of mad stampede to get clients and get product out the door and get turn get turnaround, get sales, uh, people just sort of say, well, I'm sure there's value because people are buying it. But if you want to build a sustainable business, my strong suggestion is to keep tracking the value that you're providing. And if you do that, then you will have a kind of confidence that I think is very strong. And you will show re- you're showing respect for your clients by not um, uh, by not selling them a story, by not you know giving them a whole bunch of hot air about how wonderful the product is, but saying, you know, here's the the process, right? I mean, I wrote a number of different packages um, to like little software applications to help build a business case. You know, you give me your numbers, uh, I will, uh, this program will then look at all the variables and you can adjust whatever you want and here's how quickly the program will pay, will pay for itself, right? Here's how quickly what it is that I'm selling will pay for itself. And uh, providing that kind of return on investment uh, is really important and it shouldn't be something that you just pull out of an area where the sun don't shine, but you've, you've built that case with, with other people. And I think that's a, a very important aspect. And uh, pe- some people in business can get a little tense around that because maybe deep down they're concerned or perhaps even afraid that they're not providing the value that they think they're providing. But uh, I think if you really do work to build the case of why people should, build your, should, should buy your stuff and the value that has been proven, then you won't need these other tricks. And I think if you have that core value, then um, you don't need the tricks and you will outlast the people who sell based on tricks. So I hope that, uh, I hope that helps. So somebody asked, how do you make a business case where raw numbers are not available, such as a social service? Uh, I'm not sure what you mean by the social service. Prostitution? Um, rub <laughs> tug? Um, Steph, I did have a question. Can you hear me? Yes, go ahead. Yep. Uh, I've been um, running a translation business online for about a year, and um, I've, I've had some trouble marketing the website. Um, I've, I've invested some money in Google advertising, and, and the uh, results were really disappointing. I had about 60,000 uh, shows, which meant that people were 60,000 people had actually seen the advertisement while they were searching. And uh, I only had two or three people actually click on my advertisement and go to my website. I was wondering if you had any ideas about marketing in, in general for, uh, for a translation website. Well, I think that's a great question. Uh, I have some experience with Google uh, ads. I, I ran, when I was the marketing director at uh, the last company I was at before Free Domain Radio, I ran with a budget of about $10,000 a month um, uh, Google ads for a couple of months. And uh, and I must say that uh, uh, I, I agree with you. I find them uh, uh, very expensive. And um, the click-through rate is very low. Uh, and, of course, who cares about the click-through rate? What we do want to know is what the purchase rate is. And uh, so I, I did not find them to be helpful. Um, I don't, and I did a lot of research and, you know, sat down with uh, all the executives. We went through all the keywords and what we wanted to bid on and what we wanted to buy and how we wanted to drive traffic. And, 
you know, we had specified landing pages with flashy presentations and blah, blah, blah. And we, we definitely got some, some interest, but uh, some of it was from academics or, uh, and some of it was from business writers. And, you know, so you, you cast the net really wide. You don't know if the people who are coming are competitors or, or you don't know if the people who are coming are just people interested in the field who don't actually want to buy stuff. So um, we, I pulled the plug on that after about three or four months and uh, we started looking into alternative ways of doing it. So I certainly agree with you. I tried Google ads, um, early on with free domain radio and, uh, I just, it, it found, I found it to be completely unsustainable from a monetization standpoint. And I know you're not interested in this aspect, but this is just ways that I have, have worked out whether it was worth it or not to me. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm just going to make up some numbers here because the numbers aren't really important. It's the way of thinking about it that I think would be helpful. Um, because, uh, let's say that uh, one out of a hundred people who visit Free Domain Radio may end up donating, and they may end up donating a hundred dollars. Let's say, right? And let's say that to service that person, uh, I need to spend ten dollars on the server for bandwidth and this and that, right? So, um, you know, one out of a hundred people will spend ninety dollars on Free Domain Radio as a donation, and that ninety dollars will likely come if it's going to come six to twelve months after they start listening to the podcast, right? So that's, uh, I mean, that's a really tenuous threat. Uh, and so, but, but it did give me some numbers, right? So if I was, and just to, just to round it up back to a hundred, right? If I was spending more than 50 cents to 75 cents to bring someone for, to free domain radio, then I, I was not doing good things, right? I, I just wasn't doing good things at all. I had to find a way to drive that cost down. If I was spending $5 to bring someone to free domain radio and 1% of people donate $100 in 6 to 12 months, um, then it's completely unsustainable. I'd be spending far more money bringing people to free domain radio than I could possibly uh, to, um, uh, to, to, to get any monetization from them. So uh, I had to sort of pull that plug because I couldn't, I couldn't find a way at all, no matter which, uh, uh, which approach I took. I could not find a way to bring people to Freedom Aid Radio through Google Ads that was conceivably sustainable, that they wouldn't just have it going completely into the toilet within six to, six to eight months. Um, now, what I did, though, I went, I went over to StumbleUpon, and I haven't advertised for Freedom Aid Radio since I started handing out the free books, because those are sort of the advertisements. And... Um, but before that, I was spending money on StumbleUpon, and I don't know what the, what the mathematics is now, because this is about two years ago. But I found that StumbleUpon was just excellent, excellent, excellent. I could get someone to free domain radio from StumbleUpon for a nickel. And I thought that was just remarkable. Um, and uh, uh, Greg and I did some work together as well. And um, Greg, you looked into, I think, was it Facebook ads or MySpace ads or something like that? And we never got any traction off those either, if I oh. remember. <clears throat> Facebook was a total bust. I tried half a dozen different kinds of ads, and three of them got boinked for um, objectionable content. Um, and the other three um, never – I think I got a total – I could count on two hands the number of total clicks I got on the other three. Right. So, But StumbleUpon, it really drove traffic. Uh, so I would strongly recommend uh, giving that a try. Uh, and uh, again, I have no way of knowing um, the monetization path for free domain radio. I know this sounds all kinds of cold and clinical, but of course it takes money to run, and so we need money to come in. But uh, um, StumbleUpon was by far the best 
uh, in terms of uh, getting interest. Uh, and again, I don't know the degree to which people uh, came through that. Uh, so I, 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 would, um, I, I would focus, if I had money to spend, I would not spend it on Google Ads myself. If I were in your shoes, I would spend, send it on, uh, spend it on StumbleUpon. Now, the other thing that, uh, and again, I don't really know anything about the translation business, so forgive me for, you know, shooting wildly. But um, uh, the other thing that has been really helpful is um, uh, I get, uh, you know, 3,000 video views a day just on YouTube. But there's a bunch of other sites. But YouTube is the big one that, uh, that I get my video views on. So if you were able to put together a video that might be helpful for, pe- for people in, in the realm of translation that would give them something useful or something helpful or something like that, uh, that is a really good way. Uh, and it can't be sales. It can't be, you know, a, a commercial because nobody's going to watch that. But if there was a way for you to, to get some kind of views uh, through that, I think that would be, um, uh, that would be very, very helpful. Um, there are other things to do in terms of marketing. Um, I mean, I don't know whether this fits your field at all, but I've always had some pretty good luck uh, with um, uh, trade shows, right? So you get a booth at a trade show and you have a promotion where you give away an iPod touch or something like that. And uh, uh, you get business cards and then you draw and you give away the prize. And um, uh, that can be just a way of getting a bunch of cards so that you can follow up with people and see if they're interested or whatever. And that's a pretty, I think, well-known and recognized way of, of doing it. That may not be something that you're particularly interested in, uh, that's certainly a way that I've drummed up uh, some business uh, before. But if you're going to stay on the net, I think that uh, writing articles, of course, that's how I got started with Free Domain Radio. Writing articles is a really great way of um, of getting your name out there, right? So you have your article and it's something useful around the realm of translation or something helpful. And uh, you you get it published and, you know, it's, it's your name, something useful. And at the very bottom, uh, it's just a website. And, uh, you know, the people can be drawn into your website uh, that way. So again, I, I, I don't know if any of these are particularly helpful, um, but but would those be anything useful that that you could th- things that you could try? Absolutely, those uh, especially the video side of things. I've done quite a few videos on YouTube. I think that's a a great idea that I hadn't even thought about tying in my translation stuff with that. Uh, thanks for those uh, tips. I appreciate that. No, and and seriously, I mean, you know, give it a, give it a shot and post post on the board. There's lots of people who have uh, uh, you know good uh, entrepreneurial web experience. Uh, the other thing that's really important as well is you know really dig into your Google Analytics or whatever it is you're using to track your site. Uh, look look at uh, where people are coming from. Um, of course, link exchanges. I don't know that they're particularly useful. I mean, if you want to, that's not too bad. A thing to do, um, but if you come up with a free resource, um, one of the things that uh, Greg and I did about a year and a half ago, I think, was uh, when the books became free, uh, we 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 found Google groups or Yahoo groups of uh, you know that would be interested in that kind of stuff, and uh, you know we we said hey you know some free books and and so on. So if you come up with a video that would be helpful for people. Um, you, you can post it in Google groups or Yahoo groups, and then of course people who've signed up. For and you know really make make it really brief 
uh, just do it once and and make sure you say that it's free. Uh, and you know because you don't you don't want to spam people obviously with you know. <laughs> uh, but if it's if it's useful or or if you have an article published, that's really helpful as well because then it's not just like you know come to my uh, video, but it's like hey you know this this article of mine was published. It may be of interest to listen and and then people will get that email uh, if they're subscribed to that news group or whatever. So that can be helpful. And again, you don't want to spam people, of course. But uh, um, I, certainly, you know, when I got stuff published um, on uh, the Rockwell, I'll strike the root or um, antiwar.com, uh, I would make, I would post make it. Sure. Sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, if you do that, make sure you're writing it as though you're a real person and not trying to sell something. And if you do hit, uh, if you if you go to groups that are outside of, of sort of the relevance of whatever it is you're selling, at least try to find threads that are relevant because otherwise people get annoyed very quickly and um, ban you. Yeah, and, and reasonably so, right? I mean, uh, you, you do want to spend a little bit of time reading the news group just to make sure that it is something that will be of use to people. So the fact that it's free isn't as important as the fact that it's something that, that will be of use to people, so... Yeah, that is something to be used delicately and not more than a couple of times a year maximum. It took a lot of effort up front, but through that vehicle, I was able to hit, uh, in, in, a, in about a month, I was able to hit a, a million subscribers between the two group sets. Right, right, right. Uh, and it did, it did actually help. We got some, some, some good feedback uh, from people about what we sent. And I think, I think one person complained about spam. Uh, and that was out of, uh, you know, quite a number. So, uh, and, you know, fair enough. But uh, that's that's another thing that you can do. Um, uh, as long as you're respectful of the group and, and are actually posting something that is not sales, is not marketing, and is useful, right? So if we go to a group that's interested in in, in anarchy, and, you know, we, we, you know we, we look into the group to make sure they don't just like, you know, uh, gruesome, grisly music with eyeballs popping off the stage or something. But they're actually discussing topics of anarchism. And we say, you know, hey, there's a, there's a free book that just came out on anarchy. could be of interest to you. Uh, and just give them a link to the page. Um, I think that's, that's a reasonable thing to, to do because those groups would be interested. Um, but, uh, you know, if it's like a stomp on the head of the queen, guys, then... Uh, they won't be interested in, you know, everyday or practical anarchy, and so uh, that would be uh, uh, that would be another thing that that I would do. It's it's a, it's a it's a reasonable, I think, way to use to raise your profile if it's used, uh, you know, respectfully and judiciously. Um, Greg, is there anything that I'm missing? Because we, I mean, we haven't done that marketing stuff in a while, but we certainly did try a number of different avenues uh, in the past around uh, raising the profile. Along, we did the ads and we did some Google Group stuff and. Um, uh, the T-shirt was direct, a total bust, but direct direct e email also. Um, but I found direct email to be hugely hugely costly in terms of time and effort, and very very limited um, return on that. Yeah. Now, well, once in a while, it, sorry, go ahead. Well, well, once in a while, you 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 find somebody, you know, you find that one needle in a haystack, but but you got to kind of balance that against the. I mean, I spent. And probably, I don't know how how much I can't I can't even remember. It was at least a couple hundred hours calling emails manually off the web, and and again, be very careful if you decide to use tools to do that because email calling is uh, um, highly suspect now, and people do things to try and trap you from capturing emails. Yeah, so we we did it all though. manually. I, I certainly remember that. Um, 
And that's, you know, so you just yeah. do, I mean, the, the way that, that I, and this is something that, that was, again, I did at the very beginning was, uh, and, and this is, you know, this is, I, I can claim complete innocence of motive back then, because, uh, of course, for the first, well, for the first quite some time, Free Domain Radio was, you know, completely free, uh, still free, but uh, there weren't even, there wasn't even a donation button because it was just a hobby. And so, you know, when I got articles published, and particularly when I started putting out podcasts, and then when I had a website, uh, I would just, you know, <laughs> sounds completely lunatic, but this is the excitement of the entrepreneurial life. I'd just, uh, you know, sit sit down on a Friday night, uh, you know, with a cup of hot, hot chocolate, and uh, I would just do a Google search for libertarians, you know, <laughs> and I would find someone's blog, and I would scroll around to see if they had a contact me form. And that I would just email them saying, you know, hey, I just started this new podcast. Uh, it's free. It's, you know, commercial free or what I, I can't I don't think I even said it back then because it was not even something that I was thinking about. Um, but I said, you know, this is new podcast. Uh, you might be interested. It's really, you know, philosophy. And so I did libertarians. I did objectivists. I did philosophy and, and so on. People who might be interested in that kind of stuff. Uh, I did some anarchy, but, you know, you go to anarchy web pages. It's it's all that, you know, that same bloody A and shaven headed geeks and all that and I just didn't think that was going to be particularly fruitful but uh, you know find if you can do that and again it's really time consuming but it can be very helpful and uh, that's how you know some people who ended up being very uh, involved members of this community uh, first came into uh, first heard about it right so that can be something again very time consuming but in a way that's good because if it is time-consuming, it means that very few people are doing it. And a lot of entrepreneurial stuff is just grit your teeth. And, you know, it's not like I wanted to sit down and, you know, glaze my way through a bunch of blogs to try and find somebody who was interested in what I was talking about. Um, but, uh, you know, I think sending one email to someone who's got their email publicly posted uh, is, uh, I think, is, uh, is a fair thing to do. If, you know, and some people certainly did. Uh, find it uh, of interest and they would write a little blog article about it and that would be read by other people and so on but if, without that initial contact nobody ever knows who you are or what you're doing so uh, that would be another thing that i would suggest but again you need some neutral valuable resources so that you're not you know sending an email to someone saying buy my translation services because that clearly would be pretty spammy right but if you have something that's neutral and third party and helpful then uh, particularly if it's published on an external site then that can be uh, uh, that can be very helpful. Can I make a suggestion about ads too? Please. Uh, um, one of the things that bugs me as somebody who's really into design is uh, poorly designed ads. And I think this, uh, as a consumer as well, you get an ad in an email or you get something and it just looks so um, cheesy and corny. It looks like it was created in five minutes using you know Comic Sans on, on <laughs> Big Microsoft font. Word. Yeah. Yeah, big font. It's like that turns me off more than anything. And I think if you're really going to portray uh, an image of professionalism, then uh, you really need to like look into maybe you know finding some kind of graphic designer or something. It, yeah, um, somebody pointed out on the board just saying using clip art. Yeah, that, that's exactly what I'm saying. Is like you know you see an ad and somebody puts in clip art and Comic Sans, and it's just it turns me off as a consumer. Like I'm not even going to give you the time of day. You know, not only am I going to get angry that you spammed me, but in the case of Comic Sans and clip art, it's just it's a waste of my time. Yeah, not only did you spam me, but you kind of insulted my intelligence as well, right? Like I'm not 12, right? Right. Exactly. It's the same with those car commercials you hear where the guy's shouting at you, you know, come on down to the auto mall and, and buy our cars and stuff like that. It's insulting. Right, right, right. And it, it is also insulting if 
if you're not interested, right? Uh, in, in so that's why it's important to you know read someone's blog a little bit and see if they would be interested in that kind of thing. Uh, but yeah, I think uh, you know either send it plain text, you know carefully worded, crafted, uh, nicely done, spell checked, proofread, grammar corrected, and all that kind of stuff. Because you know you really only get one shot, right? Because you can't be uh, you can't be spamming people. But yeah, I, I think you're right. I, I think that is that is important if you're going to send something that's that is at all graphical. I, I don't think I ever did. I think I just sent plain text stuff. Uh, or maybe something with, you know, just plain text and a hyperlink. Um, because the moment that I see an email that's not from anyone I know that's got graphics in it, I just assume it's spam uh, automatically and, and won't read it. Uh, so uh, so that's, uh, you know, something that, you know, I, I just wouldn't send stuff with, with graphics and so on in it. I think that's uh, just not a, uh, uh, it, it's too close to a commercial or to advertising, I think, to, to be taken seriously. So I had a, a couple of ideas. Um, the first thing that, you know, this this might be sort of my my bias towards my own circle who are you know into the into the social media marketing sort of thing, but I think that the sort of advertising as like interruption is not as effective as as it you know, as other things that you could be doing. So if you have like sort of advertising as conversation, so go out there and, and provide something useful to people like start a blog, um, go on other people's blogs and interact with them and do things like, you know, go on Twitter. I mean, you're, you're going to find people who are interested in what you have to say. And that really helps. Um, it helps even more if you really narrow down your market before you start doing things like that. So if you say, I'm going to provide translation services, well, you know, to whom, for what, you know, what kind of translation are you going to do? Are you going to translate business stuff? Are you going to translate like people's school assignments? Um, and it sounds sort of counterintuitive to say, I want to market to as few people as possible. But I think, and the way that I've experienced it, um, the more like targeted your message, the more it's going to be, and the more people that you can make like a, a natural connection with who are going to be interested in you and the stuff that you have to offer them. Yes, I certainly agree. Now, particularly when you're just starting out, um, because you have you have no credibility with anybody when you're just starting out. I mean, people get an email from me, and I'm just starting, probably even now, but it was certainly when I was starting out, like, who the hell is this clown? Like, why the hell would I want to read? I mean, people have that high barrier, particularly in their inbox, and so, uh, and that's why StumbleUpon, I thought, was very good as well, because it, it uh, people have already signed up for a recommendation system, and uh, they are um, being presented with websites that whatever stumble upon algorithms figure out will be of use to them. It's not, uh, it's, ran it's not random and it's not a straight push. There is a little bit of pull. You know, push stuff is when you just spam people or just send them stuff without any context. Uh, and it's not, again, it's not the end of the world, but it's, um, uh, the pull is when they come to your website of their own voluntary accord, right? So stumble upon, I thought was a good blend of the two. So, uh, I think that's, um, uh, I think that's a good place to start. And particularly when you're starting out, you just have no, uh, have no credibility. Uh, with anyone, and so you really have to be focused and and not bother people. I think. So I, I have a question for you, Steph. If nobody else has a question, go for it. I'm sure they can interrupt if they want. Okay. So my um, for the the people who are not in the know, I have recently, as of like August, started up 
again, this is sort of the second go round. My own um, IT company. I've been working with James and hoping to get Greg in on the action too eventually. Um, and it's been going really well. Like it's been going so well that, like I I went to a gathering of. You know, other people like bloggers and basically like my target market um, on last Saturday and like 16 people came up to me and they said, you're Charlotte. I've heard of you. Oh, that's fantastic. It was, it was, it was the weirdest thing. I'm like, how, how do you know me? Um, and apparently like the the clients that, you know, James and I have done work for have like talked us up absolutely huge on their blogs actually um i haven't told anybody this yet but i am uh, assuming that you know the the article gets accepted i'm being um talked about in an article in usa today that's coming out on oh Monday that's great well. that's great that's great. Yeah, it's it's freaking fantastic. Be sure to mention Free Domain Radio because you know, the, the mainstream media loves Free Domain Radio. I think it's really, really important <laughs> that we just try and get ourselves as much exposure in the mainstream media yeah. as possible. <laughs> See, My leader has instructed I, me I, to mention I, this I, website. <laughs> I, I distilled some, some ideas from, you know, your fling with the media oh, yeah. and... I tried to, I tried to say like things that could not be taken out of context. Like if she tried. No, it's good. I, so, uh, you know, I, I, I was, I was always happy that you know, although they did bitch slap, bitch slap me with a lot of newspapers, at least they weren't completely rolled up, so uh, I could roll with it. But uh, well, congratulations! I think that's just fantastic, and uh, I think that's a really good indication, right? I mean. As we all know, word of mouth is the best advertising by far, right? I mean, you know, we all see – I mean, just this happened to, at FDR, right? I mean, uh, I said, let's have a movie night, and uh, we, we batted around a bunch of films, and I think we couldn't end up coming with something. But I was interested in District 7, right, because, you know, science fiction-y, and it looked like an interesting metaphor, and it was – I think came out of a South African group of writers talking about apartheid and so on. And then people said, oh, you know, this is a chillingly violent film and so on. And, and so I ended up not, uh, not going because of word of mouth, right? And so word of mouth is everything. You know, the degree to which, you know, and I've, I've talked about this before, but the degree to which you can, you know, RTR uh, with, with, with clients, you know, uh, is there anything I could do, be doing better? What do you like? What do you not like? Provide, a, you know, have a postmortem in a project, you know, when you, when you've, you know, say, you know, just give me five, ten minutes. Is there anything I could have done better? Was there anything that was annoying about what I did? Was there any time where you felt out of the loop? Was there any time that you were worried? Was there, you know, that that's really, really important. You know, we all just want to charge off to the next paying customer, but circling back is really important. Provide the customer something they don't get every day, something that they don't get from other people. And sitting down for a postmortem and inviting criticism and inviting, you know, I'm constantly doing that at FDR, right? You know, what could I do better? What could I do worse? What do you like? What do you not like? And, well, constantly before I was a parent. But I'll get back to it. I really will. But um, yeah, that, that's really, really important uh, when it comes to, to your customers. Because then they will completely remember you because you won't be any other – you won't be like every other vendor who comes bungeeing in to drop off the product and pick up the check, you know. But to sit down and say – you know, how's your experience of working with me? What did you like? What did you not like? Uh, you know, if you can give me two seconds, I'd really appreciate it. You know, I'd like to hear improvement ideas or whatever, right? 
And that's useful on two levels. One, it's that it gives you constructive uh, criticism. Uh, and the other thing is that if it gives you destructive criticism, then you can choose not to work with that client again. <laughs> it's a good, you know, give people power over you. Give people power over you and see how they handle that power. That's very efficient, right? Don't hoard the power to yourself and then hope that things will work out. Give people all the power. You know, hey, tell me what you like. Tell me what you don't like. Give people all the power in the world to criticize you and then see how they handle that power because if they can't handle power, it's probably not that good to be in a business relationship or probably any other relationship with them. But anyway. Yeah. And that's that's been fantastically effective when I've done it. And especially since I want to make every client that we get like a long-term client. And because I am marketing to such a small niche that literally everybody knows everybody else, um, that's been fantastically effective. But my actual question was, how oh, do I'm I sorry. Know I'm sorry. When... We're out of time. You don't get it. I'm sorry. Oh, <laughs> I was rambling too right. long. Well, no, que no question for you. Next. Sorry, go on. I'll, I'll just F off now. <laughs> um, um, but no, my, my actual question was, I've been noticing that I've been coming up against um, a lot of constraints lately. Like, I could do more marketing. I could, like, fix my website. I could spend all day on Twitter, which is what I'd love to do, like actually interfacing with, Plus you mean with people, interfacing. Oh God, I use business jargon, talking with um, people that I want to go out and get as clients. And my, my question was, how do I know when it's time to, to stop working for the man and go like full time at it? Cause I think that this could potentially be huge if I was able to devote more time than I am now to it. But as it is, it's like I'm working 13 hours a day between my job job and the, the entrepreneur thing, and I'm fucking exhausted. Right, right. No, no, I certainly understand, but you're running up against constraints. I mean, you are working with James, so, you know, we'll talk about this offline. I understand. Constraints. The problem. What? 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 <laughs> What's Nothing. That? Just kidding. Nothing but love, man. No, no, Nothing but love. Uh, James is a stone genius who has saved me from my own 1990s coding mistakes uh, many, many times. But um, yes, please do not piss off my PHP guys. <laughs> <laughs> No. Um, I mean, that's, that is a, a great question. And of course, ultimately, the only person who can answer it is Jesus. But um, the, uh, it's a great question. When do you do that tipping point? It's sort of like you're walking up. Uh, do you, you used to do these, um, when we were kids, seesaws, right? I don't know. They're called seesaws here. You know, you used to sit on either end of a plank and go up and down with a swivel in the middle. And uh, it was for me, the entrepreneurial life, and I've, I've quit a number of well-paying gigs and steady gigs to go entrepreneurial, right? So uh, I, I quit uh, working at a bank to go do this uh, software company in the mid-90s. And then I quit that software company to go do the entrepreneurial stuff as a novelist, which didn't work out. Um, and then uh, I quit uh, this uh, job uh, at the last company in order to, uh, uh, to do free domain radio, which fortunately has worked out. But uh, it's so I've walked that plank. And to me, it's always been like you, you start at one end of a seesaw, right? And you just start walking up the seesaw. And you're walking up and you I don't want to fall, right? Don't want to fall. Because if you try to do something in the entrepreneurial world and it just doesn't work out, then it's okay. You just step off the plank, right? But as you're walking up the seesaw, you start to come to a fulcrum, right? It starts to tip forward. Now, of course, at some point, it's completely obvious, right? If you're making $10,000 a month, then it's like, okay, I'll, <laughs> I'll go do that, right? But you want to... You want to do it before then, right? Because it's probably not going to happen if you don't do it before then. 
But um, uh, so I, I would say that it, it is really tough to know exactly when to do it. But um, uh, and the only thing that I've uh, found really helpful is is to look at what my own internal systems are doing, so to speak. So, for instance, um, am I thinking about this a lot during my day job? Right? Am I am I sort of getting interested in? Am I am I am I finding it harder to concentrate on my day job because I am uh, thinking about this other possibility? Well, if that's the case, then uh, I would listen to that instinct, right? Because if your if your instinct is starting to turn that way, then um, we can assume, you know, since you have a good degree of self knowledge and therapy and so on, that you're not just, you know, trying to sh- screw yourself somehow, right? And, oh, and I quit this good job and go do something yeah. stupid because I, I don't like money or something. You know, I, I, I want more stress in my life. I want to fail, right? The good thing about therapy, I mean, one of the many, many great things about therapy and the sort of philosophical self knowledge that we pursue here is that. Our instincts aren't trying to kill us, right? <laughs> I mean, because, you know, we've dealt with those demons, right? So so we can really begin to trust our instincts, I think, in a much more productive way when we've gone through that kind of self-knowledge, right? So if if you weren't afraid, like if you weren't afraid that y- you would make a bad decision, like if you just said, okay, well, the decisions that I make in this area are going to be good, then what I what I've done is I've monitored my own level of interest in this other thing, whatever this other thing is. And when it has simply become overwhelming to me, like this, most of what I think about, then that's when I've said, okay, well, I assume that I'm not going to try and kill, I'm not trying to kill myself or screw myself up or, you know, end up with me living in a cardboard box in a van down at the river on a steady diet of government cheese. Uh, then I assume that my instincts are telling me something important, right? My, my desires tend not to lead me off a cliff. Right. That anymore. Right. When I was younger, before therapy, before self-knowledge, before philosophy, my desires did often lead me off a cliff. But with greater self-knowledge, my desires are actually shockingly trying to help me. And so I would simply RTR with yourself, stay honest and open with yourself and notice. Right. When your enthusiasm is so high, when you're thinking about it all the time uh, and you can't really get interested in your current job and you have some reasonable indicators of success, then just go, just go and, you know, say, oh, it's a recession. The recession is an incredible opportunity because in a recession, so few people are starting businesses that when the recession ends, as it always does, you will be one of very few people who have, who have sort of a new business offering, a new thing to do, right? If anything you can do that you can survive in a recession is fantastic. Uh, if you have to start a business being in a recession, and, and you can do it while you're in a recession, being in a recession is a good time to do it. Because it, t- it always takes a year or two to get any kind of business, any kind of credibility. And so in a year or two, there will be no new businesses in your field, or very few. And if you're one of those who's established some credibility in the meantime, you will have already gathered up a bunch of clients, you already have a bunch of relationships, you'll already have a credibility and an income and some stability by the time the recession ends. And then when the recession ends, people are like, oh, I'm going to do this entrepreneurial thing, but you'll already be way ahead of them, right? So if you can do it in a recession, not everyone can, but if you can, that's that's the time to do it. Yeah, and, you know, I've, I've 
something all while you've been saying this because I just realized that like I know exactly what I want to do. Um, my last um, last day at the dreaded day job is actually um, is actually next Friday, and the the project that you know James and Greg and I like this this business that I have it is literally all that I think about all day. Like I I'm sitting at my desk at this stupid investment bank thinking about nothing but. I could be on Twitter connecting people. I could be answering my work email. I could be like, yeah, I, I've I've known for like a month exactly what I wanted to do. So right, right. Well, right. I would then say that the moment that you you can, then do. Dude, rock on! Thank you so much, Steph. Ah, you know, I mean, what's the worst that can happen? You could fail, and then what'll happen? You'll get a job at some other company, maybe better, maybe worse, maybe the same. So if you fail, what'll happen? You'll be right back where you were before you failed. What if you lost, right? Yeah, I mean, the, I have literally already failed. Like, I mean, it can't get worse than it was last December when I had, like, literally 50 bucks and was homeless. Like, it can't get worse than that. Right. Like, that is what failure looks like, and I'm okay. Like, here I am. Yes, absolutely. And uh, if, you've, hey. if you've come back from the brink, the brink is never that scary again, right? Right, exactly. Well, I have a question for you then, Charlotte, um, and, and for everybody, basically, is I'm in this boat now where uh, my partner and I are both poor, and we want to start this business. How did you guys do it with no money or very little money? Dude, I'm I'm the definition of poor. Um, like I'm I'm getting sort of like paid at, at the job that I am now, but like financially, I'm no better off than I was when I came back from Russia. Um, so it all depends on what kind of business you want to start. Um, the the business that you know James and I are in, it took uh, eighty four dollars and seventy three cents to start. Um, it will take less if you like already have a hosting account. Um, so what kind of business do you want to start up? What, what are you doing? It's a copy and print shop with a design like component. So uh, already as we're working on our business planning and pricing out the equipment, it's, we're going to have to ask for at least 250,000. So, um, my concern is that since we're both poor, we don't have the collateral to offer a bank that they're going to turn us down for a loan there. Um, so I'm like, I'm worried. I mean, I know that we could, I'm very confident in this, in this, in this business and I think we can do really well, but I just don't know where to go. Like, where do you find the investors? Well, I'm um, sorry, Charlotte, um, you didn't since, get investors, right? You have no investors, right? No. And that's, that's what I was going to say. Since I'm sort of not a brick and mortar thing, I'm probably not the person to ask, but, um, one thing that I did look into and it, it totally depends on what you think about you know, taking money from the government or whatever. But, but if you look on the sort of like smallbusiness.gov, they have all kinds of small business loans, stuff like that. I would also look into um, like alternatives. Like if you wanted to, to start out like online or something and not make it a physical business or whatever, but I'm, I'm not the person to ask. Steph would probably know more than I would. Yeah, I mean, I'm no, I'm no investment guru whatsoever. I mean, I've, I've gone through a couple of rounds of investments and presented to, to investment houses and so on. But you know, I'm certainly no expert in this area. But, um, is this your first, uh, uh, your first business that you're starting this, this print shop? 
Yes. Right. Um, and it, so when you say you have no collateral, that means you, you know, no houses or anything like that that you could uh, put up as collateral, right? That's right, yes. I mean, I, I, my level of risk is, you know, not, not as high as some people's. I think it's reasonable. I think it's reasonable. Of course, everybody does, right? But um, if I were you, I think that trying to cut my teeth on a business that's a quarter million in the hole out, up front – uh, and trying to figure out how to do entrepreneurial stuff with a quarter million hanging over my head would be pretty stressful. Um, I, I mean, I, I started um, coding for the business that, that I ended up uh, in as a student. I was, uh, uh, um, I was a student and uh, made no money for, I don't know, six or six or 12 months. And um, uh, so, so it wasn't until we had a couple of sales already that we ended up getting investment. Now, the investors that we went to, and I don't know if you move in any of these kinds of circles. I didn't at the time, but I mean, some people, um, the guy who ended up running the business did, is that if you know anybody, uh, you know, people like uh, you know, dentists or, or doctors or lawyers or accountants or whatever, a lot of them are interested in uh, investment, uh, investing. And uh, they don't all want to own stocks and bonds because... I mean, the people who invested in my company got 35 times their money back within a couple of years, right? So they, they did pretty well uh, in, uh, in, in what we did. And uh, that, that kind of stuff is kind of, they have some mad money, some pin money or whatever it is that they want to invest. If you know any of those kinds of people, then you can, uh, you'll give up a significant portion of your business in terms of ownership, which may not be the end of the world, right? I mean, you may want to get a third party in to run the business who brings investment capital with him and takes, you know, half the business. Uh, or whatever, right? I mean, and, but because what he's going to bring is more business experience. Um, I mean, we actually had a couple of people who came in, uh, and this is this is very common, right? It's not unusual. Uh, they come in and they they bring a board, right? A board of directors, and that sounds like a big fancy schmancy thing, but basically it's just a bunch of people uh, who've got business experience who will help prevent you from making the obvious mistakes that everybody makes if they don't have that kind of guidance in in the business world. So that's. That's one possibility, but if you don't have access to that, and that will take quite a while, and it will require some significant legal fees and, and uh, signing of contracts and drawing up of memorandums of understanding, and, I mean, that's, that's a big, complicated mess, and I get the sense that you're kind of itchy to, to go, right? So I'll throw out one other possibility, yeah. um, which is, uh, given that, it, you know, the other reason why it's really good to start a business during a recession is that people's production capacities are underutilized in a recession, right? Manufacturers are cutting back because their orders are down in a recession. And what that means is that within, you know, 50 miles of you, there are probably half a dozen or a dozen print shops that are under capacity, right? Because, and, and that under capacity can be bid on relatively cheaply. Right, so if some right. somebody in the X Y Z printing press, yeah, they they maybe they used to run for twelve hours a day. Maybe now they're only running for seven hours a day or eight hours a day. So there may be four or five hours that is underutilized for them. Now they're still paying the for the equipment, right? Probably because you say it's very expensive. It takes a long time to pay it off. So it's the kind of thing. It's like um, it's almost like uh, if if you could rent your house while you're on vacation and make back the price of your vacation, you'd be happy, right? As long as you knew the house wasn't going to be harmed. But it's just too much hassle to do it, right? So there probably is a lot of people in the print shop business whose um, whose uh, capital equipment is underutilized, 
uh, and they may very well be interested in um, renting it out to you. It's just a possibility, right? And you could just, um, you know, call people and ask, you know, uh, uh, do you, you know, do you rent out? And people may not, they wouldn't want to do that if they're running at capacity, but if they're not, it's like, well, you know, he's not going to give me the business, so I might as well make some money off him running the machinery. And it would also give you experience with the machinery and uh, an experience of, of, of the costs of, uh, of running the business and so on, and it will get you some customers. Once you have customers in some kind of income stream, then you, then you have some collateral, right? Right. Because my concern is with an investor is bringing somebody in who doesn't know the business uh, my partner has been a manager of a copy center for about five years now, so he's familiar with the business. He knows the ins and outs of it. Um, I don't want to bring on somebody from, you know, with a master's in business and who thinks they know everything about it because this is a different kind of – it works differently. It's like a restaurant. You have to have a passion for it as well because uh, just business sense isn't going to make it happen. It's got to be the quality of the food and whatever. So we don't want to have somebody come in and tell us how to run their business with these corporate terms and all these things that just aren't going to work for this particular kind of business. It's a, it's a very it's a unique business because it takes a different kind of person to run it than a normal thing. And no, and I agree so with you there, but I mean I can guarantee you that nobody who has uh, an MBA, say, is going to want to come in, bring a lot of money to run a business they have no experience in with somebody at the helm who's already very experienced. If somebody wants to do that, then they, they, they didn't actually have an MBA degree and just look for the wet, wet spot on the printing of their own degree, right? Because that's just a crazy thing to do, right? That would be like me saying, well, I know nothing about your business, so I'm going to give you $250,000 to start it, and then I'm going to run it. But, but that's, that would be retarded, right? Because I know nothing about your business, right? Right. It'd be like somebody coming to me and saying, I'm going to give you $100,000, but I'm going to do the podcast from here on. It's like, uh, <laughs> I don't think that's going to work very well. So, so I don't think that's a big risk. Um, if somebody's going to invest money in your business, um, then like a bank, they're not going to be interested in running the business. They're not. The banks don't do that, which is why they want collateral. If people, um, uh, if people are going to invest money, you know, like the doctors or the lawyers or any professionals you, you may know or any people you may know with some excess income, again, tougher to find in a recession, but um, they're not going to be interested in the ins and outs of your business. They are going to be interested in the profit and loss statements. They're going to be interested in sales projections and so on. But those are all perfectly reasonable things to be interested in. And it's actually a good discipline for you to, to do those things, right? To put your you know, estimates forward and see. Right. But you know, people who don't have experience they won't want to come in and run the everyday business because that would be duplicating the efforts of somebody far more experienced, which would be economically very inefficient, right? Right. I mean, they already have someone with five years experience, so it wouldn't make any sense for them to come in and, um, and not know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Unnecessary overhead, I guess that's what I would say. And anybody who wants to do that is just not someone to get involved in business with because they just don't understand what profitability means. One other option you may want to consider is if you don't have a lot of money to invest in the beginning, um, you could consider outsourcing where uh, you you play the role of the front man for your business, but on the back end you pay somebody else to actually produce the product for you. And then over time as, you're, as you accumulate enough capital, eventually you can invest in your own storefront, your own equipment, 
and uh, then you won't need to outsource anymore. Right. It was that useful at all? Is that, I mean, again, there, there are no easy answers. These are just some, some vague possibilities from <laughs> admittedly me who doesn't know your business very well. No, that, that's great. I'm just making notes here, trying to take this. Well, this is going to record it, right? So um, uh, uh, you, can, uh, you can listen to it, of course. Well, it's been very helpful so far, so. Good, good. All right. I like uh, some of the suggestions here. For sure. I mean, just getting your hands on the equipment is is a challenge, but um, you know, there's there's so many opportunities in a recession that uh, it's um, uh, it's you know, it, it takes some creativity and imagination. But people who who found the businesses in a recession very often do very very well, uh, and uh, because they just face a lack of competition down the road when things get better. So I think that's uh, I think that's very important. I think part of it too is that um, you know we're looking into other options like maybe just starting as an online thing originally with just a design component, but for the print shop, um, in order to really set yourself apart from the established competitors, you got to offer them, offer the consumer something different. And if you're looking at the established um, print shops, a lot of them are um, uh, the, the majority of print shops. About eighty percent of them in the in the market are mom and pop shops. Um, and you go to pretty much any one of them, and it's just a counter, and there's hardly any interaction between you and the people running the machines. Um, and the design is often crappy if you go to get a flyer designed or a banner or something. Uh, so we wanted to change that and make it so that uh, you know there's a very personal um, a touch when you come in. You talk to a designer that sits down with you and works out your business flyers, because as I was mentioning before, a lot of people just use the clip art and the and the uh, you know the Comic Sans because it's easy for them and it's cheap, but it's unprofessional and it turns a lot of people off. So our thing was, if you come and in, in, in print with us, you know you'll get some nicely designed flyers that'll look really professional. Um, but the other thing too is the quality. Um, since my friend works at a Staples, their quality is awful. And they know that, and they don't care. Uh, that's part of their business model: is do it cheaply and do it crappily. And if you don't like it, too bad, you know. And so it's we see it as an easy way to compete with them is just to to spend that extra money up front and get the better equipment that puts out the better quality because nobody's doing it. Not even the mom and pop shops in in the area where we're looking to go into. We've already done some preliminary research on all of our competitors, and the the quality is. It's decent to, to bad. It's not on the. It's not good. It's not great. And there's a lot of artists and stuff in that community that we're looking to get um, to to come in to print with us. And the quality, I think, would be something that would make them think about us rather than the competition. Ah, but can I be completely annoying and just suggest something to you? <laughs> yes. Um, go, I would yeah, say go that there's a, a an element of paranoia that you're not quite there where you need to be as an entrepreneur. Okay. Right, because because you have this thing where you say, well. Most of the print shops put out a product with very low quality, right? Right. But the question to ask as an entrepreneur is why? And if you say, well, they're just not interested in quality, that's too easy an answer, right? That's like God made chimpanzees, right? Um, right? Because <laughs> you need to really be curious. And as you can't assume that your competitors are dumb, right? If there's a pattern in the print industry of putting out crap for little money, 
then it behooves you to it, 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 it will be highly important for you to figure out why that is. Because until you understand why that is, I don't think it, you, you simply can't dismiss it. I mean, you can, but I think it's really dangerous. Okay. Right? Because, because you don't know why. Uh, clearly, these people are making money because they're in business. So there is a market for low quality. If there's not high quality in the print market, it's not that nobody's ever thought of it. There's a reason why. And that reason may not be valid. It may just be that, you know, people have gotten into a kind of habit or whatever. But I think that that would be the first question to ask, right? If I'm looking to fill a niche that doesn't appear to be filled, the question is, why has it not been filled? Because right? especially, I mean, I mean, we assume that most businesses at least want to, you know, do sort of well or whatever. Does it is, is it is it because there's no real demand for it? Because if there's a demand for it, you can be pretty sure that somebody's going to supply that demand, right? right? Particularly shops that you know, or you could say, well, maybe because nobody's bought the good equipment, but you don't know that for sure, right? So you could call up a bunch of print shops, which is what I would do. It doesn't mean this is what you should do. This is what I would do. Um, I would call up a bunch of print shops and say, you know, what is the very best quality you can produce? And if they produce, if they say, well, we can produce X, Y, and Z, I don't know what the hell that would be. And that quality is what you guys are looking at getting into. What it means is that they have the capacity to do it, but they're not doing it. And that is really important to figure out why. Because if you guys go sailing into this niche thinking that, oh, here's a big trampoline and it's just a huge pit down which is a, the rubble of 20 other print shops that tried the same thing and that's why nobody does it, that would be highly dangerous, right? Right. So you, you need to be more paranoid. I, I mean, I, I, I sweated half my, my youth away in this sort of paranoia. It's like, uh, we, we should go to the web, you know. Well, nobody's on the web in our field, right? And then I would Im immediately think initially, well, that's because they're idiots. And I'm a genius and I could build on the web so easily and blah, 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 right? And then I would sit to myself, well, you know, I'm not the only smart guy on the planet. <laughs> and there has to be some reason why nobody's going to the web and blah, 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 right? And, uh, you know, it's because, you know, everybody wants the web, you know, just to, to, to look at an example of how it was in the 90s. Everybody wanted a web interface, but that doesn't matter fundamentally. It doesn't matter what people want. It only matters what they will pay for, right? Everybody wants high quality. The question is, will they pay for high quality, right? The question is, if you say, well, it's going to cost you four times to do your business cards with us than it will be with other people, are people going to say, that's worth it. Or maybe it's twice. Or maybe it's 1.5 times enough. The other way to figure it out is if you look in the yellow pages and everyone says, a thousand business cards for $20, right? Like some crazy low price. Then what that means is that customers are really driven by low prices. And, and that doesn't mean that you can't offer a superior offering, but you really need to, you know ready, aim, fire, right? The aiming part is really, really important, right? To know what the market is and why something is not being offered. It's not because no one's thought of higher quality. There must be some other reason. And, and that reason may be, if you can overcome that reason, then you know, the world is your oyster and you're the lord of the print universe, right? But, but I would uh, not dismiss that. 
That makes perfect sense. You know, you get caught up, and and this is why I really wanted to do this, this whole roundtable thing is because you do get caught up in in certain ways of doing things, and you don't think about uh, an outside question like that. And and it's a brilliant question, and I kind of like kicking myself for not thinking about that, but it makes sense. Oh, and listen, listen, I mean, this uh, there were six million questions I never. It's when you're in it, when you're in the trenches, you don't see, right? Uh, but so so this is just some, some outside right. perspective. But to me, it was all just I mean, it came out of my my sort of understanding of, of economics such as it is, which is that, you know, I, I believe in market efficiency. And that doesn't mean that people don't make mistakes in a market, but it means that in an aggregate market, in fierce in a fiercely competitive market, if no one's offering something. I just look for smoldering bodies of <laughs> optimistic people who sailed into that, not knowing, you know, <laughs> follow me, lads, you know, like the really fresh-faced, enthusiastic kid from the farm in every World War One movie that's ever made. You just know he's going to get shredded on the wire by some horrible machine gun, right? And uh, so that that's just my, you know, have, have respect for the market. And it doesn't mean that you can't outthink the market. But I wouldn't start with that assumption. That, that's, I guess, all. And this is a general principle for people, right? Uh, it's just paranoia is really, really, really important. I mean, and, and of course, I mean, this just comes out of free domain radio too, right? I mean, <laughs> I mean I, I'm competing with free. I mean, what is it? I was there are like, I don't know, is it 20,000 podcasts? Like it's some lunatic thing, right? Or, or the Ricky Gervais show has been downloaded 170 million times or something like that. So, and they're, they're all free, right? And it, it, there's no, not even donations or anything, right? Or, or the Bugle or other podcasts that are sort of enjoyable. So, I mean, this is something like I'm, I'm competing with free and nobody, nobody's really been able to monetize podcasts and so on, right? So uh, that's just been my paranoia. I don't assume that it's like, well, I'm just, I'm just so smart and engaging that people are just going to give me money because I'm the only smart and engaging person out there. And this is nonsense, right? I have to find uh, uh, something, that, uh, something else uh, as, as a way to, to bring value, right? And, and uh, uh, so uh, it, we don't have to go into all of what that, that entails, but I just... I didn't just assume it's, well, I'm just a better podcaster than everyone else, so I'm sure it's going to work out for me. I just spent a lot of time trying to figure out what it was that would add uh, a, a meaningful value, right? And, and for me, of course, it was um, uh, philosophy in, in one's life, right? Philosophy in one's life, not philosophy in the abstract. Uh, and I think that's, that, that is the, that's the market differentiator. It's not just a marketing strategy. I mean, it's been my life strategy <laughs> for like 20 years. So uh, it's, you know, I can buy it honestly. But uh, I didn't just assume that I was just going to be engaging enough to, to, to do this for a living. I had to sort of figure out why uh, nobody else was able to do it. So uh, that, that would just be my, my sort of my two cents worth. All right, so, and to, to, to keep us posted, I'm certainly uh, very, very interested to hear uh, what happens. It's uh, fantastic uh, to, uh, to, to be able to do what you're doing and what a high it is when it, when it works. Uh, did anyone else have any other questions? I don't want to keep all your tender souls up young. I know there's lots of young people here who probably want to go and uh, hit the clubs. Hello. Hello. Um, hey, Steph. Um, I just had a uh, real uh, quick question. Um, I posted in the chat room before, um, but it was, um, what would your advice be for the kind of shy or chronically introverted who want to be entrepreneurs or 
work with entrepreneurs in the free market? I mean, I guess, would there be any defining um, advice that you might give to people who want to do that, who might have a harder problem being more social, um, socially adept as people who are more extroverted? Do you mean you? Yes. Okay, sorry. I, just, I have a friend here. Yes. Yeah, okay. Um, well, I, the advice that I would give would be sort of like somebody who says, uh, you know, I have a great idea for a, a website, but I don't have any technical skills. Well, what would you say to someone like that? Basically, just research and try to figure out and, you know, grab people who know how to put stuff like that together. Right. You'd say partner with somebody who has the skills that you don't. Right, right. So this is exactly what I would say to somebody who's introverted who wants to be entrepreneurial is to partner with somebody who has the skills and desires that, that you don't have or want to achieve. Okay. Is that, I, I know that's a really short and, and fairly retarded answer, but there's absolutely nothing wrong with being introverted and an entrepreneur, right? I mean, everybody knows okay. about uh, Mike, uh, Bill Gates and Steve Ballmer, but what was the other guy, Paul Allen or something? I think he was pretty introverted. And... Um, uh, you know, not everybody has to be uh, um, Steve Jobs, you know, like you can be Steve Wozniak as well. And I think be a little bit quieter and more introverted. Uh, so, uh, you, you know, the, the important thing to understand as an entrepreneur is you simply can't be everything. You just you can't be everything. You are part of a team. Uh, even if you're the business owner, you're part of a team. And even if you run your own business with an iron fist, the team that includes your clients, right, <laughs> who have complete control over you fundamentally. So you are... Uh, you are part of a team uh, as an entrepreneur, and uh, introversion is very, very important to have as a business skill, in, in my opinion. I think to be introverted is to be very thoughtful and to be very sensitive to the internal dynamics of the organization, right? Fundamentally, in my you know, amateur opinion, why are people introverted? Because their internal stimuli are more engaging to them than the external stimuli of the world. Uh, and and why are people extroverted? Because the world and the people in it are more stimulating to them than their own internal um, their own internal activity. And that there's you know six million different reasons to why that will go to whatever degree it does one way or the other. But uh, it has been my experience that um, uh, some of the introverts that I've worked with have amazing sensitivities to uh, to the states of minds of people and and of customers as well. And uh, I think that is a very, very important, um, you know, people, people who are introverts are naturally good at self-knowledge, in my experience and opinion. They're, they're naturally good at RTR with themselves. doesn't mean they always do it perfectly, but uh, it does mean that, um, uh, that they have more inclination to it. And because of that, they are very, very important in the business world because uh, to, to build sustainable and productive long-term relationships takes a lot of emotional sensitivity. Uh, knowing when a customer is unhappy before the customer is willing to tell you is really important because that's when a business relationship can be saved as any personal relationship can be saved. If you sit down with someone and you say, I've noticed that you're not particularly happy at the moment. And they say, I haven't really noticed it, but I think you're right. That is a way to, to turn the relationship around. And people who don't notice that, like the salespeople charging off over the next hill, uh, will not. And, and most, most business revenue, of course, as we all know, comes from uh, existing customers and so new customers are very expensive. And you make most of your money uh, servicing and upgrading and making existing customers happy. That takes a lot of sensitivity and a lot of emotional skills. And I think that introverts are uh, very good at that. And that doesn't mean that they do the confrontations or they do the sit downs or anything, but they really can pick up on that stuff. And I think they're essential for maintaining a healthy culture uh, in the company.
Definitely, definitely. Uh, I, 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 with what you were saying, I think I, I definitely tend to be able to to be extremely sensitive to um, to picking up so um, cues on on uh, with people and and, no, and noticing discomfort and intention and other things like that. At least that's what other people have said to me. So it's not just something I'm thinking, but um, but yeah. Um, thank you. I think that was really helpful and um, it making me feel a whole lot better about. Um, looking into entrepreneurship as being an option. So I, I really appreciate it. Right. And the other thing, too, um, just without going into any of your history, because you because of the history that you have, you would be very good at seeing dysfunction. Like, because you've had the history and, and the therapy and you've worked very hard on, on self-knowledge, you would be an essential asset because you would be very, uh, very quickly and early able to detect toxic or, or abusive or destructive relationships. Potential relationships, you know, steering away from destructive customers is as important as getting profitable customers. Uh, and this is, comes out of an article I read like 20 years ago in the Harvard Business Review about firing your customers. You know, you do you, you, in any business like 20 percent of the customers eat up 80 percent of your time. And sometimes it's 90, 20 and sorry, 90, 10. And uh, you you with your skills and abilities would be able to um, to detect such customers and avoiding such customers is the difference between succeeding and failing so often uh, as as a as a um, as a company. I mean, there's a number of customers that I worked with over the years. I would have given my absolute IT to have never met them in the first place, and um, uh, not all of them were in the public sector, though some of them certainly were. Majority of them were, but uh, it is really really important to not do business with uh, you know the destructive, destructive, dysfunctional, abusive, weird, creepy. Um, acting out, uh, you know, because you will never make any money. You'll lose money on them. Plus, they'll badmouth you, right? So, I mean, it's it's just a it's a hole with no bottom. It's you know, you're already in. You've already cashed the check, and it's just uh, you know, you're just hanging on. You lashed to the Titanic. No no way of getting out. Uh, with your particular skill sets, you would sit. You you would just take a phone call from those people, and you'd be on them right away. Um, this all happened to me uh, before uh, therapy and and all that, but. Uh, uh, that's another great skill that people who are more introverted or people who've come from difficult histories uh, can 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 bring enormous value uh, to to companies that way. And again, that can be the difference between making and breaking a customer uh, a company. In fact, it, I think it often is. Well, uh, I really appreciate it because uh, um, I I have definitely been nervous and felt like um, being introverted was more of a hindrance than it was going to be helpful, and that I needed to, you know. Uh, I definitely, it'll definitely help for me to improve my social skills um, in the future. It's just I felt like it, I was going to be forever kind of trapped working for somebody else all the time um, just because I was introverted. But I, I, this is just giving me a lot more hope, and I feel a lot better um, about um, about the option. Um, so thank you for talking to me about it. Oh, no, really you're welcome. It. And, I, you know, I, I certainly would not at all, you know, the, the image of the entrepreneur like Richard was it Richard Bronson is the name, the guy who founded Virgin Airlines, who's like, you know, water skiing with naked models stapled to his back and goes air ballooning and all this kind of shit, right? It's like, yeah, we get it. You, you didn't like your wife, right? But, uh, I mean, this this idea that the entrepreneur is some, you know, crushes your hand in his handshakes and fire-breathing, uh, laser-eyed guy who strides the world like a colossus, uh, those people are really dangerous. <laughs> I mean, they can be great, right? But they, they really are dangerous because they get people all kinds of pumped up and, you know, and, and not necessarily in a way that is, is productive. And they tend to move at such a pace that uh, the, the patient building of a long-term good company, uh, I, th I think you need a lot of emotional sensitivity to be a, a, a good leader. 
And uh, I think that um, to be introverted is good uh, in that way, for sure. You just want to make sure that you can uh, speak your mind. And if you do get involved in an entrepreneurial situation, make sure that uh, you find, and it's a rare combination to find somebody who um, who is not necessarily introverted the same way, but who really values that introversion and then the the insights and the depth of perception that it can bring and so it's usually somebody who um was introverted and then has become less introverted over time but that may happen to you as well but it's somebody who remembers the value of introversion and uh, I, w- I would certainly look for that in partnering with with somebody okay okay hey, mind thank you for a second yeah. okay so um yeah, I, I have a couple of uh, of people that I know who actually have um, who have successful online businesses. Uh, one of them, we've done a lot of work for. Like she, she hates being on the phone. She will literally not pick up a phone. She will not answer email, and yet she's you know supporting like four people on the the money that she's making. Um, there's another one who also has a blog. He too like won't answer the phone. He you know, keep saying like, I'm an introvert. Like, I don't want to go out and meet people. Um, and he also has a a successful business and both of them have done it, um, on their own. So, you know, it's, it's totally possible even, you know, working around, if you don't like being on the phone, if you don't like doing email, whatever, then it's, it's totally possible. Um, or, you know, the, the thing where Steph said, you know, partner with somebody who is more extroverted. I think that's why, uh, what we're doing is working because I've somehow become more uh, more extroverted uh, after finding FDR. I still don't understand how that happened. Um, and of course, the the guys are like customers. Ooh, I don't want to talk to them. Sorry for that gross mischaracterization. Um, but but it seems to be working out very well. So it, it does work both ways, even if you can or or don't want to get business partner. I'd like to add something. Um, I'd I'd like to vouch for something that uh, Steph said a moment ago about uh, you don't want customers who who tend to drain more resources than purchasing uh, services. Um, it's very true. Uh, I work in tech support, and about ten percent of our customers consume about ninety percent of our time, and and also. Uh, you may think that people that the people that pay you the most amount of money will demand more from you, but um, in my experience, it's it's actually been the opposite. Uh, the customers that we make the most money from are typically the ones we hear from the least, mm. whereas the people who pay us the least amount of money or they they buy the least amount of service from us, those are the ones that call all the time, and you know they 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 take a lot of my time on the phone. You know, they end up getting, uh, you know, many hours of tech support only to find out that the problem was on their end. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I, we've all heard this cliche, you know, uh, or the or the rules of customer service. You know, rule number one, the customer is always right. Rule number two, if the customer is wrong, see rule number one. But, um, I, you know, I don't think that's really a way to, to run a successful business. And... From time to time, I do see articles in the news about uh, how some very large companies, they'll cut loose a whole bunch of customers. Um, I, there was one article, uh, well, there were several articles years ago about 
these big retail outlets like Circuit City and Best Buy, where they would tell certain customers not to come back because they would mm-hmm. they would come into the store and waste the salespeople's time with a lot of questions, and then they wouldn't buy anything. And there, there was also another article about uh, cell phone providers who they, they would cancel contracts for people who would call the tech support line every day. So, you know, and I know it, it during a recession. Um, it's really hard to turn customers away because times are tough, but it's always something you want to keep in the back of your mind that if somebody is is consuming too much of your time and you're really not making a lot of money from them uh, or you're not making any money at all from them or they may even be costing you money, you may just have to cut them loose. And uh, you just, you know, you, you, you want to be very careful because these people can be very vindictive. These are the people that go online and libel, you know, they'll libel you or spread rumors. Um, so it's kind of a fine line to walk, but, but, um, yeah, I definitely can vouch for what Steph said earlier. Yeah. I mean, the customer is always right, but the customer is, I think, reasonably defined as somebody with whom you have a profitable, mutually profitable business relationship. Parasites are not right, right? Destructive people are not right. And we're just talking about customers. When you get involved in an entrepreneurial situation, you also have the challenge of, of hiring people, right? And, um, uh, you know, people, uh, you know, Ty, you have these great skills of, of uh, understanding and being sensitive to people and particularly aspects of potential dysfunction. Oh, I mean, you, you hire the wrong person in a key position, and sometimes even in a non-key position, it, it can genuinely threaten, if not actually bring down your company. And, uh, you know, being able to to stay away from those kinds of people or not hiring them in the first place because you can see um, uh, who, who they are and what they're like, uh, it, is, um, uh, it is really, really, uh, really important. I mean, I said, no, the mentioned this before a long time ago, but the company that I was at once, uh, I joined uh, as a, a director of technology, uh, there was an ex-military guy there who was the team lead who'd been around for donkey's years. I mean, he was like six foot eight. He was like 250 pounds. Uh, he was very aggressive and uh, a, a very angry uh, guy. And um, uh, I, had to, I had to fire the guy. Uh, and uh, I did not have the support of uh, anybody else on the management team and I had to fight this pretty lonely battle for uh, like two or three months uh, to to get this guy out but uh, boy after I did whew, I mean what a night and day change uh, in the department I mean it was uh, it's just huge right and uh, I mean this is a guy who used to make people cry I mean he was, he was that angry uh, and uh, um, <laughs> he yelled at me in a meeting and it's like dude come on <laughs> I'm your boss. I mean, you don't have to respect me because I'm your boss, but it's just not that bright to yell at your boss at me. Anyway, so, um, uh, you know, the, the, that kind of sensitivity, and of course, this was all after therapy and all that, so I was much better at dealing with these such situations, but it is uh, really tough um, to, to avoid people who are destructive, not just in terms of customers, but employees. Really, really important. And uh, I, I, would, I would go for an introvert every time for that kind of stuff because the extrovert simply will look at the outside and not at the potential problems from the inside well this is um, more than i bargained for but i mean this is great feedback i i, I really appreciate it I, so i really think it's really giving me a lot to think about so uh, i appreciate it and i thank you steph and everyone else who mentioned mentioned stuff you're welcome and uh, just just to, to sort of finish up i mean there's this perception right in society that introvert is is less valuable than extrovert 
And uh, I, we don't have to get into all of that. We can do that another time if you're interested. But uh, I've definitely been on both sides of the fence. Uh, I have a very strong introverted tendencies and some, some extroverted tendencies. And uh, um, I don't, uh, I don't believe that uh, extroverts are. Um, better than introverts so that it's more valuable or, or in any sense superior. Uh, I think that both uh, aspects of the personality, um, which of course are oversimplifications in general, but both aspects of the personality have their strengths and their weaknesses. You know, George Bush is an extrovert, right? I mean, starts wars, right? So uh, I would say that uh, don't, don't assume that introvert means limited in business or limited in any other kind of thing. Um, so I just wanted to sort of mention that. So. All right. Def um Sorry, I just want just before we end up, does anyone have any sort of last questions or comments? Again, I don't want to, have to do the 90, 90 hour podcasts uh, if I can avoid them because uh, people have their lives to live as well. But uh, did anyone have any um, uh, anything they wanted to to uh, to add or mention uh, before we uh, we close off? All right. Well, thank you, everybody. I really do appreciate it. Uh, some great, great comments and questions, as always. Brilliant crew you are. And, um, uh, you know, we'll, we'll put this out and we'll see if people are interested. Uh, I certainly would be happy uh, if people find it helpful. Uh, I think it's a very useful thing to, to talk about. And again, it is sort of personal freedom, which is uh, sort of what we're, uh, we're all about, at least what I'm all about in this part of the conversation. So I think it would be very useful if other people find it helpful. So I really do thank uh, everybody for taking the time to come out uh, this evening. And I guess I release you for your ecstasy-fueled raves. And uh, <laughs> have yourselves a great, great evening. And uh, for those who are around, I will... Talk to y'all on Sunday. We'll be back on Block Talk Live, live, live. So, good night, everybody. <laughs>